I'm Hugh Atchison, and this is Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot. On today's show, I visit Missy Robbins at her new restaurant, Missy, in Brooklyn, and we got a little surprise the day we were there. She got a rave review from the New York Times. That's dining critic Pete Wells, and he was wowed by the pasta, as Missy Robbins is certainly really known for her pasta. She's kind of the benchmark of pasta on the East Coast. The West Coast, I would say the benchmark is out in Funky. But Pete really raved about vegetables. This is what he wrote. Missy's vegetables tend to bring together only a few ingredients, often applied in ways you don't quite expect. I don't know where else you'll taste pistachios and anchovies combined with skinny, leaf bud green leeks, marinated in vinegar, or a kind of panzanella made with grilled bread, capers, fresh oregano, and chunks of zucchini that are still tender after a quick poaching in olive oil. So, this episode is the last of our tour of New York. That included stops at Tom Colicchio's house, Cafe Blue on the Upper East Side, Little Tong Noodle Shop in Midtown East, and Empion Nad Pastor in the East Village. Coming up over the rest of June, I'll take a swing through Los Angeles, and then in July, I'll be back in Atlanta with some guests coming through town for the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival. Here's this week's conversation. Missy Robbins gets great news. Is it Missy or Missy? M- well, it's I'm, all Missy. It's all Missy. It's all Missy. Even when there's just one I, I and just one S? changed the spelling. Okay. <laughs> Don't ask. Okay. No, that's Don't good. That's good. My uh, become very confusing, and now people think my name is actually spelled Missy. My in, my English professor older sister would be like, "That's Missy," <laughs> with pronunciation, but that's okay. Um, I am at a restaurant in Brooklyn, right along the water, just down from Peter Luger. That is uh, Missy. Um, that is a wonderfully beautiful restaurant. And I'm sitting here with the owner and chef, Missy Robbins. And recently, I guess more than three years ago now, you opened Lilia. Just, it'll be three years in January. Yep. yep. And this one's a baby. This one is a baby. We opened September 8th. But a baby that's getting great reviews and so is packed far, all the time. So far, we got a nice little review from Mr. Pete Wells today. Well, that's a, that's a good thing to get. And then right here is uh, this beautiful pasta room where you're making everything. You're doing extruded and hand rolled. hand everything. So the menu. Tell me about the menu and tell me about the tell me about the impetus for the restaurant. Like, what does it mean to you? What what does putting together a menu like this mean to you in a space like this? What's so, the message? This restaurant is something I wanted to do long before Lilia ever happened. This idea of really focused on pasta with a few vegetables, and then as I sort of got more into eating vegetables over the last couple of years, it became sort of this equally weighted idea of, and I don't know where we came up with the number of 10 and 10, but all of a sudden it become became, we're going to do a restaurant that's 10 vegetables, 10 pastas. Um, and I think pasta has been part of, of my world for about 15 years now. I, I went to cook at Spiaggia 15 years ago in Chicago and um, really hadn't, I had worked in Italy, but I hadn't done Italian food in restaurants in America. And it was daunting and scary. And I went in as the chef under Tony Montemano and he's a world of knowledge. And I was sort of, it was my first huge exec chef job. And it was really like an, an entry into the world of Italian high end cuisine in a four star restaurant. And I, I, 
just love, I've always loved pasta. I made it as a kid. My mom bought me a, a like extruder. They didn't call them that then, but like a pasta, a home An pasta. An extruder maker. or a roller? No, an extruder. extruder. I had this thing that like extruded fettuccine. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was an extruder. And I was obsessed with it. And so pasta's always been a thing, but like I, it's really been a large part of my life for 15 years. And, and I, Lilio was not opened as a pasta restaurant. It became very known for its pasta very quickly which I cherish and I love, um, but that's not what it was opened as. It was just meant to be an Italian restaurant with a focus on vegetables and fish and this gorgeous wood-burning grill that we built and a hearth. And um, once once we sort of understood that people were really relating to the pasta at Lilia, we, we knew that we could was do this and, and that hopefully people would respond to it. And I think it's still early to say like where it's gonna go and exactly how people are responding so far i think i think the people are are liking it and it's fun for them um they're definitely people who often want to see more protein but i think they're often people who are i mean i've heard ends of the spectrum like oh my god this is brilliant it's so cool that you don't have protein oh my god why don't you have fish on the menu and it was also really important we we opened the restaurant a mile and a half from from Lilia so Missy and Lilia are very close and we did it intentionally because we we feel like Lilia is a baby and we wanted to be close to it and we looked at spaces in Manhattan we looked in other cities we've looked all over the place and really what it came down to is just wanting to be in our at our home uh, my my partner Sean Feeney and I both live three blocks from here and Williamsburg has become home for both of us since since we opened Lilia we were both Manhattanites before that and um, so I think it was important though to differentiate a little bit we didn't put wood burning in here which part of me regrets a little bit now um, but it's a really different restaurant. It has a different feel. Lily is in an old garage. This is in brand new construction. How do you make them feel like they're a Missy Robbins restaurant without making them exactly the same? And and I think we've achieved that through color palette and yeah. style without like overtly doing it. I it's know. It's very light in color palette and very beautiful. Yeah, and I don't like a color. More modern view. <laughs> no, I mean, I love monochromatic spaces. I have a, a problem. But I mean, it's funny, the, the monochromatic space, and then you look outside and the bridge is right there, and you're kind of tucked under it almost. And then the glass uh, room for the pasta room, which becomes a PDR at night. I don't know, you're talking about you know, the choice of whether to expand into Manhattan and just have Lilia in Brooklyn. I think, I think you've, you're on to something. And I think the success you've had recently, which is just a small part of your success, but we'll talk about success overall and what it means in Shefton in, in a little bit. But I think your inclusion within your community is one of the big attributes of successful restaurants now. It's really hard to fake enthusiasm and authenticity and zeal to be in a place to serve a community and when you with Lilia that's the automatic thing that you feel when you get there it just feels right yeah you've touched on something that's become really important to us as we build restaurants and with Lilia it was never the intention to go into a community we needed a restaurant space we found a space it was a risk to come to Williamsburg. I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about Brooklyn. Um, we really wanted to open in the West Village. That's where we both lived at the time. And it was really cost prohibitive and we just couldn't find the right space for the right money. And when this space came about, I was like, there is no way I'm opening Williamsburg. 
and then over four months we would come to Williamsburg and we would walk around and we would check out the demographic and it all started to make sense to us but it was never about like oh let's go in and be part of the community and we very quickly learned that we became part of the community very, very quickly, quickly and we really yeah. loved it and and we are a destination restaurant but we also serve Williamsburg and Greenpoint and we see our neighbors all the time and we become friends with our neighbors and also at Lilia we have an all-day cafe so there are people we see every single day that come for their coffee and their pastry and there are people that often just stop by for a drink in the cafe at night which turns into a little para TV bar but when we started looking for spaces and when we started and when we found this we realized that we could once again be part of a building community and Two Trees who's the developer of this building and the park across the street is really redefining this community and within a couple of years there'll be three more towers here and there'll be offices in the old sugar factory and we just saw an opportunity to build something and and south this is south williamsburg and lily is north williamsburg and while they are very very close to one another they're definitely different neighborhoods in a, in a way yeah i, I can see and that that, and that has become sort of part of our our mission is it's not about gentrification because we're certainly not gentrifying Williamsburg but it is about going into You're places where a little where, too late for that. A little too late without you. I think I think I think it happened way before me. Um I'm not that cool, Hugh. No. Um, you but I, am I. <laughs> but I think I think what's become really important is definitely being able to add to a community. Um and I think that's something we want to be able to do wherever we end up going. But that's interesting with community inclusion. And I think that, that you can move to a community and be involved in an integral part of it the next day. But that all relies on a frame of mind and empathy for the situation and understanding and a want to learn about the history and the people within sure. it and include them um price point wise in the decision you've made. I mean, I moved to Athens, Georgia and 1998 and 2000 opened up my first restaurant which was moderately fine dining but had to be a community restaurant i mean this was still a small town in the south i had to hand explain yeah. to people that sweetbreads were kind of like crispy mcnuggets and they're really good <laughs> just take it slow you're going to enjoy them so i realized that, but that was a critical part of being included in that community you don't want to go above the community what they want and you want to appeal to them. But this menu at the price point of 10 antipasti and 10 pastas is kind of coming in right at the level that, that is going to drive your success in the neighborhood and feed the locals. So in success, I mean, reviews, accolades, awards, I want to go down with a tombstone that says, employed a lot of nice people nicely and was a good dad. That's good enough for me. It's beautiful. It's all we need. So what's success to you? I mean, you're seeing a lot of it. You're seeing a lot of you're at the forefront right now. I'm having a moment. You're having a moment. <laughs> no, but having it's a, a well-deserved moment. moment. Um, you know, success can mean a lot of different things. And I think my, my definition of success has certainly changed over the years. Before, before I opened Lilia, the only way that I thought I could be successful was opening in Manhattan. When I lived in Chicago, I moved home to be back in New York because that, to me, defined success. And if I had opened 10 restaurants in Chicago, it wasn't where I did my training and it wasn't where I felt like home was and it, and it wouldn't have felt successful. That's changed, obviously, over the past couple of years. Um, I think for me now, success is, is being able to just make guests happy and make our team happy. And if 
accolades come through that, which they have, I, that's amazing and I, it helps the business and it's certainly nice to be validated every once in a while and, and I'm not gonna shun that because that's certainly not why I do it, but it, it certainly makes me feel good. Um, and, and I don't think anyone would deny that, but I, I think really what it's about now is welcoming guests into what we believe are our homes and we really, part of the idea of the open kitchen at Lily and the open kitchen here is that like you're coming into our home and you're seeing what's going on and you have access to me and you're talking to me and you're talking to the cooks and you know Sean my partner stands stands next to me in the kitchen and it's just like we're hanging out and I think I think that's become part part of it and just really creating a, a place where people have fun coming to work and they enjoy it and that's not to say it's not hard and I'm not demanding and all of that other stuff but um, generally I think I think people are pretty happy coming to work at both Lilia and here um, and, and we've created a sense of family and I think our guests can feel that and and every night um, you know, for the past couple of years at Lilia, people come up to me and they're like, oh my God, your staff is so wonderful. Wow, your kitchen's so mellow. Like, why are they all so mellow? And I'm like, I don't know, they're, they're just doing happy. their thing. Um, they're doing their thing. So that's really, for me, success. I think mentoring people, for me, and seeing people grow. Um, you know, the, the gentleman leading the kitchen here today, Will, is is a young guy who started on Garmanger with me a couple of years ago and he now runs the kitchen here and just watch him be able to grow. Um, my chef de cuisine at, at Lilia is uh, someone who was my line cook at Spiaggia 15 years ago. Wow. And we recircled. But yeah, I love that when those recycle. We I haven't mean, I, worked together for 15 years. Yeah. Um, but I have people like that who worked at 5 and 10, 18 yeah. years ago, and they come back around, whoop, and, and they're now working for me in different roles at different restaurants. Yeah. And it's so warming to see. Yeah. Uh, but it's also so respectful of the situation on both sides of the equation that they they respected the work they did with us years ago and yeah. they came back as to a totally more. different person as, by the way grown. they were different I was different yeah. and um, so to see that kind of growth in people is is really exciting to take a line cook and make them a sous chef to me that's where I I think I feel the most sense of of success yeah. In a time where everybody says it's more difficult to find cooks than ever before, I agree it's difficult. And that's got a lot to be, uh, a lot attributed to the false promise of cooking schools. It's got a lot to do with the relative low pay of the industry and what we can afford to pay yep. people and still kind of pull out some sort of a profit at the end of the day. So I look at it as not an economic conversation, but more of a, um, uh, a community within the restaurant argument to say that unless you give people the parameters and the space to learn and be happy and enjoy their work and push them professionally, provide them with a safe and optimum environment to work in, if you don't do that, then you, you can't, there's no justification for having them stay for the long term. Yeah. If you do do that and it's not that difficult, then you end up with a workplace that's much more benevolent and interested and happy. Everybody asks me, well, we're the best restaurants in the world, and I'm always scratch my head and think for a while, and then I start usually just talking about Joe Beef and uh, why the I've Joe Beef restaurants. I've never been. I'm dying to go. Well, it's just there's 
there is a feeling at all those restaurants that are all kind of situated on the same block, all shoved in there. And David and Fred pretty much bought the whole block over time. But you walk into any which one of them at 8 o'clock on whatever night of the week, and you're greeted by somebody who, in this age of transparency, I can tell that they ain't lying, that they're just enthused that I'm there. They're really excited to show me everything about the place. You look back at the kitchen, and they're all laughing and having fun, but doing production, beautiful production of good food. You sit down at the bar, and there's an amazing bottle of Armagnac sitting in front of you that's like a magnum of Armagnac, and... I'll get to that in a sec, but it's just sitting right there, and you can kind of touch it and look at it. And um, and then the bartender comes over and it's like, oh, you're here. I'm so happy, whether he knows you or not. And then you're talking about hockey and the wines they're about to have, and then the food starts flowing. Everybody's just happy. And then the Armagnac that's sitting there at the bar, the, by the end of the meal, you're a little bit tipsy, and you're like, oh, this for everyone, because it's right there. That's and you've been fun. staring at it, and it's yeah. vintage and cool, and there's another one just down there. Maybe I'll try that later. But that palpable zeal of authenticity and no bullshit is what Joe Beef does better than anyone. It's why they're always talked about for what they do. Oh, and thank you. That Will. is, thank you, Will. We That's made you beautiful. the chef snack. Nice. This is whipped ricotta. Little uh, Calabrian chili, honey, and fennel pollen. All my nice. favorite things on one piece of bread. That's a good. <laughs> uh, that's a t- toast for the uh, for the for the wonderful times. Right. But. So Joe Beef just has that. And I think that that's what every restaurant wants now in this age of no bullshit and thorough transparency of everything. We can Google anything. I can Google where you're getting your chicken from, blah, blah, blah. So we have to usurp all that. We have to purvey properly. We have to treat our people properly. But then we also have to be authentic. And they have to want to be here. So first question in hiring these days is, have you been here? And do you really want to work here? Yeah, and I think, I mean, we, it doesn't matter who you are or what your background is. We always invite people in to spend the night with us, and yeah. we give them food to taste, and we let them work side by side with the cooks, and I think that goes a long way, and you, you learn a lot about them, and they learn about a lot about you, and sometimes it's actually just not the right fit. Sometimes if you think that, I mean, more than me liking a cook, it's most important that everyone in the kitchen likes them, likes them. Oh, because the I'm not, I'm not standing, pressure. but I'm not standing there all day with them. Right. And the cooks are. And if I get one little, like, idea that th- this person is not gonna fit in with the rest of the team, they just don't get hired. And okay. I, I didn't. It didn't used to be like that for me. Well, no, it used um, to be that we wedged something into a situation. We'd stick yeah. with it. It was our decision. We, you know, we we're gonna back and it. And I but, always say, like, when these guys are pressuring me, like, when are you hiring someone? When are you hiring someone? If we're short, I always say, like, listen, we'll hire the right person. But I can't. I can't hire just to fit a spot because you guys aren't gonna be happy, and I'm not gonna be happy. And um, it'll you know, be more think, work if you get the wrong. Person. I think again about you go back and you create warm environments and you you figure out uh, a way to make people want to come work for you and in this day and age especially in New York these cooks have a choice of any kitchen they want to go to every kitchen is looking for cooks Mm -hmm. whether it's one I mean maybe there are a few top top kitchens that never have to look for people but I think I think we're, you know we're not terribly short staffed but we definitely need a couple people and and I think you have to be able to make it somewhere where people really want to work and be warm when they're here and um 
they'll go somewhere else for a dollar more often or 50 cents more and how what's going to set you apart um and that can be challenging and also i think the nature of the business has changed so much when i was a cook in the 90s like there were 25 restaurants that were acceptable to build your resume right. in new york and in today's day and age you can go cook pizza at roberta's you can work at lilia you can work at danielle and your your resume looks equally as good you may be acquiring a different skill set but you still like if i get a resume from any of those places i'm gonna equally interview any of those people but so, all those places have an equal view of aptitude of what we can do with food and are all searching for the same thing, whether you're making a full Right, but a, a cook has or, a choice. Like, it's not right. anymore just like, I want to go to the top 25 restaurants in New York. The cook now says, I, I want to make pizza, or I'm really interested in pasta, or I really want to learn how to work a wood-burning grill, or I really want to work only with vegetables. There's so much variety here, whereas when... I think you and I were cooking, you said, oh, I want to go to only three-star restaurants. Right. It wasn't necessarily about the food. For me, I always picked environments, and it was really important for me to pick the right environments. And, But it wasn't always like, oh, this is the exact cuisine I want. It was more about, like, this place just got a three-star review, and I like the food, and I like the chef, so I'm going to go work there. Yeah. So how are the environments of kitchens changing? You've got, I'm sure, a lot to say about this as a um, woman who is a, or as you know, a chef who's a woman. I don't, you know, it's not about as a chef who's a woman. Right. It's just sort of about as a human and a, and a person right. who's been in kitchens for a long time. And I've watched myself change over the last several years and mellow out quite a bit and become nice a little less. Happens, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, become a little less tough and open up the parameters for like what's an acceptable mistake and i think you know my vision used to have a closure of about a, a centimeter of of how off you could be and i think now i'm at like maybe i think now i'm off at maybe like five five inches to ten inches um and i I think that's... You went from metric to imperial I as did. Well? Yes, I also changed. Exactly. You, that's you true. completely changed. That's true. Um, <laughs> but I think, look, I think in this day and age, uh, cooks want to be nurtured. Um, they they want to feel like they're really learning. Well, this is total bullshit, too, that, that it's millennials who need to be nurtured. That's mm. just a... I think that's a bunch of shit. I'm not sure I agree I with know. That. I think it's a changing, just an evolution of how people uh, are. I d- yeah, I, I don't... I think there's a combo, but I definitely yeah. think that just in general, there's there's an. I think also what I have found is you just get greater productivity out of people when, when you care for them, and nurture you them, and you nurture guide them, them, and when you're, you know, not screaming, yelling, and whatever. And I, I definitely, I, I think, think like that's every chef been the case. have have had their moments, but I also think I've been nurturing throughout the whole time. I've just learned how to make the nurturing part more accessible i think you have to become a better listener in this day and age Mm -hmm. i think i wasn't a great listener when i was younger chef and and i over the past couple years think i've become better at that when a cook's having an issue it's not just like get back in the kitchen and cook it's more like okay how can we get through the issue and i think all of that kind of makes 
for a better environment. And it's not about having more women or having more men or whatever. My kitchens have always been sort of a pretty strong combo and, and I've never wanted an all-female kitchen. I've, I've, I've certainly worked for women, I've worked for men. And like kind of going back to picking environments, I always picked environments based on chefs that I liked. Yep. And, and, you know, Tony Montuano I, is my greatest mentor of my career and, and, and one of my closest friends. And I, I worked with him for five years, but Tony really sets the bar of how people should behave right. in, in restaurants. And he's a guy. So I don't, I don't know that it's a hundred percent a gender issue. And I know I'm, that's not the most popular view to take, but I, I think like I've worked for great men and I've worked for really tough women and who were tougher on me than any men that, I, that I've ever worked on and yelled at me more than any, any man that I've ever worked for. So I, I, don't, I don't ever wanna, and, and I've said this in many, many interviews, I don't wanna be considered a female chef. No, I just no, wanna no. be considered no. a chef. And, and I, from very early on in my career, just kind of put my head down and worked. And, People always say, oh, well, did you encounter all these problems? And, and I I didn't. Like, I just, and I, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm lucky for that, but I feel like I just picked people that I really admired to work for, and and I put my head down and I worked and kind of, I'm not saying the kitchens weren't tough and there weren't things right, that no. happened in kitchens that, that weren't great, but I, I definitely... Um, I definitely have seen environments change, and I know that you can create great environments in, in kitchens now. I think the key to creating good environments these days is carrying yourself with empathy and understanding. Yeah, and, and that goes back to the it. listening thing. Yeah. And I also I, think I, just being present and being in the kitchens is, is helpful also, and I think in, in this age of expansion and... I feel that every day. I'm, I'm sure you do, yeah. and, and I... And I you know, this is all kind of new for me. And I had to, when I was at Avoce, and it was very hard to go back and forth. And now I own two. They were pretty far distance apart. They one was at like, Columbus Circle and one uh, was 26 in Madison. And there was no easy way to get to, get to them. Yeah. So like, no matter what, you were half an hour away. And if there was an emergency, you were, there was a, it like, you had to make that choice. Do I take the train? Do I take the car? It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but I think in, in the age of expansion of like, how do you stay present with your team and I've obviously had to, to do that over the last couple of months with Lily and figure out how I'm obviously here at night right now at Missy and um, getting this to run and that's necessary and the tension's necessary and it's been really hard not to be at Lilia because I, I love being there. Yeah. Um, I found but, when I had one restaurant, I was there nonstop. When I had two, it was a frenetic fight to run between the two constantly. Yeah. And when I had three, I could kind of exhale and knew that I had to get enough skill sets and responsibility and people willing to take responsibility into those places that would run them in a very similar style that I would. And But then that was also kind of a difficult task at that point to take that I wasn't really going to be on one line anymore. Yeah. Expediting one kitchen. Yeah. So the choices of success, it's funny that we always, as chefs, have found we always, we get this when we, we get successful and have a number of things going on. Everybody asks, you know, well, what, what's your ideal? What, what do you want the end to be? And everybody reverts to this. 
oh, I just want a little restaurant to live above it. And it's like, I don't know if you really want to yeah, be washing exactly. floor mats yeah, on Saturday night. I gave up that dream a yeah, long time ago. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons, listen, even when I was looking for spaces for Lilia, I, I, you know, I took off almost two years between opening Lilia and leaving the Voce and I did a lot of soul searching and trying to figure out what I really wanted out of this industry and if I wanted anything out of this industry. I remember and, cooking with you right in that time span. Oh yeah? And I think we were cooking in Miami at oh, some maybe, festival yeah. or something maybe. like that and uh, we're, maybe we were doing that. Oh, Aspen shit. maybe. No, no Aspen. Aspen. Aspen, yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. I was confused. I was confused and I was lost and I really didn't know what I wanted to do and I I think um you know I had this vision of always wanting a 40 seat restaurant and blah 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 and then you sit down and you start you start writing uh business plans and, on that. and you no, start I, looking wow. and you're like wait a second i can't have a chef de cuisine i can't have a pastry chef i, I can't, can't even have, have i can't even have a sous chef yeah and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be the person making chicken stock every day. Like, that's not where I am in my career. And it's a point I've gone through in my career, and I loved it. But that's not what I want to do today. And I think when you can, when you can realize what you really want to get out of your, yourself and your position, you, do, you are able to kind of let go of that dream of like, oh, I want, I want to live above my restaurant because I... I I live three blocks from it, which is fine. <laughs> but, That's even that three blocks is nice. But I also space. know that, like, I, I don't want to be the dishwasher and the prep person and the wine steward and the host. Like, it's a I don't, beautiful idea. It's just it's backbreaking work, and to do that yeah. until into your like 65, 70 is just like to me is like oh, I don't know. That's hard. looking at the menu and the first thing I remark upon the menu and how it's structured is the handwritten menus of River Cafe ah. and to me I don't know what your seminal books were when you first River Cafe 100% and, and the River Cafe cookbook in Canada was actually called it but they couldn't do that here because the River Cafe in Brooklyn was right down the street and the, so they had to call it the Rogers and Gray Cookbook. Oh really? I think so. Rogers. Oh, I don't know. I someone that Maybe lived that was in London bought bought me all of them. A friend yeah. of mine grew up in London. She's my college roommate. And I mean, I remember getting that book in but, 1993. Yeah, those were those were my go-to books. And it's funny when you go back to them now and you look at them, and the food all makes so much sense to me. But like the photography is not it sharp, is, and no. like it's produced so differently. But they're, they're, you saw the new one, right? Yes. The 30th anniversary. I mean. Yep. Yeah, that that food always spoke to me, and it took me. It's taken me a very long time to start to be influenced by that food, but actually get back full circle to having a simpler menu and a simpler kind of aesthetic in the food, which I didn't have for many years between Spiaggia and Avoce, and the food was much more complicated there. And um, I've definitely stripped away a lot from the food in the past three years. But I think in the era of that era of transparency and authenticity, I think stripping away the uh, 
the automatics that we used to go to, the foie gras, caviar, yeah. lobster, languagey, yeah. all that stuff. If it, to me, it's there's so many reasons for that. One is the prohibitive cost of selling that stuff. Two is that something phenomenal happened about 25 years ago, or started to happen, which is America and chefdom started to learn how to cook vegetables. Yeah, which was a really important technique to learn to elevate menus so we can all charge $12 for a carrot salad, which is really mm -hmm. important to our pro forma bottom line. And then just the style of how people eat, but the River Cafe was so ahead of its of its time. I remember buying the second Paul Bertoli Chez Panisse book. That was a really Cooking by book. hand, that yeah. one? Yeah. Yeah. No, not the cooking by hand. It was the, he wrote the second Chez Oh, Panisse the actual book. Chez Panisse yeah. book. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. And just the simplicity of those recipes. And then you get to the Cassoulet recipe and it's seven pages long and, but it's beautiful and it evokes something so pure. And to me, all those cookbooks and that influence made me realize really early in my career that I did not have to reinvent the wheel. Right. Which was such a relief to me later on as Grant Ackett's is, encasing <laughs> things in balloons and has, you know, edible. Well, he's reinventing at a whole yeah. other, whole other and, level. Which <laughs> is amazing. I just do not I have always, the culinary prowess to do that. So. I always say I wish I, like, had his brain. But my brain just doesn't function like that. My and brain does not function My that brain way. just doesn't. And at some point you have to accept that your brain is never going to be like that. I am happy with my slow brain. Yeah. I'm good with it. Yeah. I'm good with it. But, it, the, but the menu is just reading so beautifully, and you're talking about things that are standing out as one, two, three, maybe four ingredient yeah, type of presentations, but that relies on what? Like, what are the cores of the kitchen that you're here? I mean, it's really good olive oil. It's a lot of Calabrian chili. A lot of Calabrian chili, a lot of garlic, a lot of lemon, a lot of a lot acid. Of Flat leaf parsley, finely minced, lots lot of, of herbs. A lot of marjoram. Mm -hmm. Marjoram's a big one here. Marjoram. Fennel pollen is a Huge really... One. Fennel pollen, fennel seed, fennel in every form. Yep. Um, yeah, it's not, it's not um, rocket science what I'm doing. It's just, I think, a unique, hopefully sort of unique yet familiar approach to using those ingredients. And, I, and I always wanted to call a restaurant arugula science. Because was <laughs> rocket and but yeah whatever good one yeah. no not good really one. bad one but um you know there's really not that much meat on there no. on this menu at all there is uh one I mean, dish that has melted bone melted marrow bone marrow and, and there's a pork, pork sugo. sugo yeah and then we've got the use of a lot of ricotta and then italian broccoli chickpeas yeah there's almost no meat and that's a reflection of my own diet and how I started eating a couple of years ago I when I wasn't working I went on Weight Watchers and lost 40 pounds and it sort of forced me Weight Watchers basically just forces you to make choices in what you eat it's never going to tell you you can't have pizza or you can't drink a martini or you can't do this it's just going to make you look at the big picture and say all right well if i do this i can't do I this can't do so that. for me like i still wanted to eat ice cream so i ate a ton of vegetables um but i i just really focused on on eating vegetables and fish and 
cut a lot of meat out of my diet and I love meat. Like I love a burger, I love a steak, I love lamb as my favorite, um, but I just don't eat a lot of it anymore. And I think this was natural for me. This wasn't like, oh, let's come up with a vegetable menu. This is actually like how I eat and how I- But it's also a menu that can adapt so beautifully to the seasons and what's coming in and, and yeah. you know, can fava beans aren't really on here but they'll be nope. on here in Hopefully. early spring and asparagus and all yeah. these things so it's i uh, think it'll be really fun in um it was it was challenging because we opened right toward right in september and sort of towards the end of summer and having to transition like right away i mean i really stretched tomatoes as i was like begging people for tomatoes um i really stretched it as like far as i could take it and a lot still needs I mean, to but change, but I thoroughly believe in the concept of canning tomatoes and then selling them throughout the winter. Well, yeah, I mean, if they're summer that. tomatoes, that's sure, great. You can do that too. It's just a long process. You can do, do that. And I think we weren't quite ready to right. do that this year, but I say it every year. I say we're going to can tomatoes this year. Every year I say it. Yeah. And I've never done it. And I I'll eventually get to the point where we have time to do it. And, you know, my, um, do you have a tilt skillet? No. So we've got tilt skillet, yeah, like and what we we things, take yeah. uh, we take the bigger white wine uh, wine glass things for the dishwasher, oh. put gal a gal or a half gallon oh, mason so jars in them, and then process them in. That's so that. smart. So I can do like sixteen at a time. Well, I can oh. do it twice, so thirty two at a time. No, I never put those like big production tilt skillety things in my kitchen. Tilt skillets are great because that's where I mean, we make they, the chicken stock. They scare me. They're great. They're just so big. I bought one used from a school for four hundred dollars. That's lasted eight years at Empire really? State South. Yeah, that's amazing. Thing's a beast. Uh, I used to have. I had one at Avoche for a while. I actually removed it. I took it out. Yeah. Because I was just like, I don't do giant batch cooking. Like that's the other thing. I just don't do huge batches of stuff. Yeah. It's, for us, it's like chicken stock and then processing, pickling, and things like that. That's useful for. But long braises, yeah. uh, abundant yeah, yeah, large braises, yeah. and things like that. If you're doing lots of meats, which are not here, so. Let's go look at the pasta room. I'm intrigued as to uh, how this all works in all there. All right. So this is our little pasta room. Hi. The incredible people I'm that Hugh. make the you? pasta. This Hugh. Yeah, we'll do that. I know. That's like, what we're going to do that. <laughs> the height disparity between the two of you. How are you? It's good to see you. That's great. Um, so, yeah, these guys, there are three to four of them a day, depending okay. on the day. Okay. And they just rock it out starting at 7 in the morning. Um, our little extruder here yeah right now we have three extruded and seven handmade okay um so like these are you milling no okay. no i have been using the same flour for 15 years and i'm never gonna it. i'm never gonna change it so we use the grand Magnaio for our double zero and then um just a pretty standard semolina and um these little babies take, uh, we use double zero for anything fresh yep. um, and semolina for all the uh, extruded and the... And 100% double zero? 100% double zero okay. and only egg yolk. Yeah. Um, and they're, uh, we're selling about 55 portions of these a night. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. They yeah. hate me. Yeah. Do you have I think they under? find it. I have a lawyer who can help. I you. think they find it very peaceful, actually. You can see. Yeah, they do all the extruded first, so it starts drying. Then they do the like fettuccine, strangozzi, and then they do the filled. 
I always know they're close when they're when they're. But that's so out. serene and bucolic that you can walk into here and be like, oh, it looks like you guys are having such fun. I mean, and he's like, oh my god. He's very polite. They like it. <laughs> they never, like it. They've never done. None of these guys have ever done this before. That's and cool. And so it's all, it's all very new to yeah. them, and uh, they've done a fabulous job. And to watch how like, how much quicker they are today than they were eight weeks ago and oh yeah they were here till seven at night every night for the first like month and now they leave at four so it's not bad and which one's this this is the tortelli it's filled with uh spinach swiss chard and uh mascarpone and brown butter in the filling so it gets like emulsified with brown butter yep um rigatoni mezzo rigatoni and then we have uh like this is all the fat so fettuccine, we're selling, I don't know what that is. Pepsi cookies. Um, fettuccine, we're selling like 60. And you'll sell all of this tonight? Yes. We do, so we give them an order. So every night we go through what we've sold in the yeah. POS system. And then I give them orders for the next day based on like what I know we're gonna do, plus parties or whatever. And they make exact orders and so we, we try and run it out every day. Are you day. freezing any? Never. 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 It's funny that I am it's very anti-freezing. Infamous uh, Italian restaurant uh, in the city uh, that yeah bags all of their fresh pasta and freezes it, and then they pull it up Who's for that? water. Oh, I can't tell. We don't talk about him anymore. Oh. Uh, do you want to retail this stuff? I. Uh, you never know what's going to happen here in life. No, you never, never know, know what's going to happen. But, um, I think I sold Yeah, no, I'm very anti-freezing pasta. And that's just, again, like going back to, you know, learning from people. Like I learned most of my pasta making at Spiaggia and we didn't freeze there. And we did the same system where we give an order every morning and come in and they know exactly how much they have to make. And but I mean, you equate it to like, would you freeze an egg yolk and use it? No. I would not. Why would you listen, do but that? The, listen, I worked, I worked in a one-star Michelin restaurant in Italy that froze pasta. Um, I, I worked in a couple places that froze pasta. I think, I think there are different philosophies on it. My philosophy is it's just not the same. And I don't what know. What about SpaghettiOs? SpaghettiOs are so good. They're Come good. On. You know they're good. The sugar. I haven't had them in probably f- 30 years. I grew up plus. in a weird household. We had never had, we were allowed SpaghettiOs. Oh, really? We were definitely servers. allowed SpaghettiOs. Mac and cheese, Kraft mac and cheese was another one of my specialties. Are you going to do a pizzeria next? No. Never I'd, yeah. There is enough pizza in never this town. Say I never say never. I know, but I... Did, I'll tell yeah. you, I got... Last year, we did our staff party at Lucali. We've become very close friends with Mark, and he let me cook pizza with him. And it was the first... First of all, I don't know much about making pizza. Like, it's not my thing. But I'm obsessed with eating pizza. Right. And... It was the first time ever that I was like, uh-oh, I think I want to open a pizza place. Yeah. Like, I became so inspired and was like, oh, wow, this is so cool. It's beautiful. It was, like, really good I mean, it's the same as making pasta. Yeah. It's an art and making yep. dough and yep. an but art of getting it right in the right place and the right onion. Dough. Yeah. And, yeah, so, yeah, I'm not going to say never. Yeah. Right now, I'm just focused on... Getting, on through, getting the through the next days here. eight hours yes. of a sh- upcoming yes, shift. Exactly. What time do you guys close at? We stop seating at 11. That's so we're a usually, long service. Oh, yeah. 530. 530, wow. 5.30, 11. And we'll seat at, I mean, we have people sitting at 11. So we're usually cooking until 11.30, quarter to 12. Yeah. Wow. It's long. Wow. 
That is great. It's long. Um, and uh, this, this restaurant will be open for lunch eventually. So the idea is to well, go. Well, the kitchen's big enough. I mean, you know, the whole question on lunch and the economics of lunch are, if you can get them in there, do it. But it just needs to make sure it's not taxing the entire well, systems every day. Well, yeah, we hope so, not. I mean, yeah. the kitchen was built to be able to do lunch. So the prep kitchen's in back. Yep. Hopefully there'll be a good transition between night and day. But we actually would love to be open all day. Like, yep. I'd love to be able to open at noon, go straight through. You come by for a bowl of pasta at 4 in the afternoon. Yep. There's so many families. We love young. that style of restaurant. I've, the continuity of always. I've never something. done it before, well, but I, have I one restaurant. But I like to go to them, yeah. so I'm always seeking that place. Like, oh, where can we go have a good snack yeah. at four in the afternoon? And it's hard to find that. And well, often, I mean, in Atlanta, where Empire State South is, the question is like, where can I go? And we're near law firms and stuff. It's like people are like, where can we go for a drink at three? Because we just wrapped up this big deal or whatever it is. Right. Or we just want to go and hang right. out. And there's nowhere because they're all closed right. between. So I think so. I think if we can pull it off, I think it'll be really cool for I mean, going back to that idea of community, so many young families here, so many vice is two blocks away. Right. So there's like offices, they're going to only continue to be more offices. And I think if you can kind of provide that for people, even if it's just to come in to have a drink. Yeah. Um, you know, I think work days are so undefined these days and people are not just leaving work at five o'clock and you know. No, it's a different world. Yeah. Different world. Well, Missy Robbins, thank you for having well, thank me. Thank you. This is wonderful. Was super Continued fun. success. Thank you. You're thank killing you, it. Thank you. Thank Proud thank of you. you. This episode of Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot was taped on location by Brian Blum at Missy in the shadow of the Williamsburg Bridge in Brooklyn. Scott Porch produces the show, and Mackenzie Mazel edited this episode. You can follow Hugh Atchison Stirs the Pot on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you hear, rate and review and come back on Tuesdays for a new episode. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Hugh Atchison. Thanks for listening as always. Eat well, be swell.